Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 136, The Dark Arts and the Nazis. The saying goes, imitation is the highest form of flattery. It follows that the highest form of manipulation is magic. But to be clear, it's still only manipulation, which partially explains the rise of the Nazi party and subsequently Hitler's rise to power. Despite the party, and then later the man, showing themselves to be brutal, racists, and extremists during their rise. So, was it just timing that explains Hitler's gaining the chancellorship in 1933? Proud Germany brought low by how the Great War ended, with its shackles of Versailles made fast around the Second Reich. And though still humbled, the German people were known to be hard-working, proud, dedicated, and luckily for whomever gained power, loyal. Or was it Hitler's personality, his way of speaking, his message of blaming everyone but the Germans for their economic and political troubles, i.e. the British and French with their overseas empires, the financiers ever tightening the screws on the honest, humble German folk, the Russians, more specifically the Slavs, who had all that land, though they clearly did not deserve it according to Mein Kampf. But behind them all, controlling them all, even without them knowing it, were the Jews, the real leaders of the modern world. Then there is another group of historians that say Hitler and his ilk used black magic to gain the obedience of the German people and used sorcery to confuse the other country's leaders while they built up their armed forces and persecuted their political and racial enemies? The answer, as always, is most likely a combination of all these. But it will be the Nazis' supposed use of the dark arts that we will focus on. For some of them truly believed in supernatural powers and sought to use them against their enemies, foreign and domestic. Now, In reality, ritual or black magic, or any magic, is nothing more than the act of attempting to access another's subconscious, to gain influence over them, to get behind what self-control a person has. Some believe this is, in itself, good nor bad, but what one does with it makes it so. Yet, it can easily be argued that attempting to manipulate anyone for any reason, thus not letting them decide for themselves, is wrong. But getting back to the magic used by the Nazis, it would be more accurate to use the word pageantry, i.e. the symbols and stagecraft that again has no real power except the influence it exerts over a person's psyche. All of this, when you get down to it, is the art of seduction, or persuasion, which is not unknown in the animal world. There are poisonous snakes that will fix their victim with a stare until they are bitten or squeezed to death. As for the Nazis, the idea was to have gained control of the state before the masses snapped out of their trance, which largely worked. None of this requires evil to be real or for the intended victim to believe in evil 
Its practice is man-made, as are its effects. The Nazis staged their shows, whether book-burning, nighttime marches through the streets with torches, or other quasi-religious rituals, of which all were woven with evocative music, or rather, more directly, military drums, which altogether is the action which brings about a reaction. The viewers are moved emotionally, in a good way or bad, but they will have their emotions accessed. In short, they are manipulated in a certain basic way to get a certain basic reaction or result. The Nazi speechmakers didn't try to intelligently explain their anti-Semitic stance to the crowds. No, they proclaimed that the Jews were coming to deflower the country's young maidens. The men in the crowd, without thinking it through, indeed acting or reacting in a primitive way, saw themselves as having to save their young women. The female adolescents became fearful, their mothers the same. These animal instincts were being accessed, over which humans have little control. So, when Hitler comes along, his statements will profess his desire to protect the young maidens and their families, all Germans. And once the emotions are activated, the fears or desires of each person will be projected onto this former Austrian corporal in his ill-fitting trench coat. He will become, in their eyes, what they believe they need to be safe. To be sure, Hitler didn't put much stock in supernatural forces. However, he did see himself as a man of destiny. Most people go through a phase, normally in their teens, when they begin to see the world for the complexity that it is, and as having the solutions to all those problems, hence a messiah complex. And for the vast majority of those people, this fades away for a variety of reasons. But not so for the young Adolf. As for exactly why this is the case, that will remain unknown. There is probably German nationalism involved, and on a more personal level, his own insecurities, and a desire to break from his strong-willed father. But these are just guesses. What can be said, with more certainty, is that there were two definite people whose ideas motivated the young man to see a larger role for himself in the world. The first was the German composer Richard Wagner, whose music moved the young man. But it was the composer's supposed ideas that inspired Hitler even more. Wagner revolutionized opera, which is commendable enough, but his views on the Jewish question and the fight against communism inspired young Hitler. Moreover, Wagner's operas and plays, which used Teutonic mythology and Aryan archetypes, which clearly demonstrated the heroic qualities of German manhood, sent Hitler into flights of grandeur. In reality, Hitler saw, or heard in Wagner, what he wanted to, that the Jews and communists had to be engaged in battle and driven from the fatherland, so Germany could once again be great. The second influencer is the philosopher, cultural critic, composer, poet, philologist, and Latin and Greek scholar, Friedrich Nietzsche. And though he will write much 
on many different topics. Again, Hitler took from Nietzsche's buffet what he agreed with and ignored the rest. The philosopher was not an anti-Semite. He was not a German nationalist. But he did write about the struggle of humanity in many regards. Democracy, he said, was weak and should be pushed aside. Christianity was the most fatal, seductive lie that has yet existed. But he knew his fellow Germans well enough to write that many of them would ignore his deeper arguments and struggles to answer life's basic questions and instead focus on the supernatural, which is exactly what the Nazis did. When Nietzsche wrote that an impartial nature rewards the strong with control, someone would take it to mean that the weaker deserved to be suppressed. When he wrote that only the warrior is truly free as he is unable to be controlled, that it was right and just to take on the world in a ruthless war, that when a strong man was beyond good or evil, he was not doing wrong in being brutal to others, so that the strong could dominate and live well. But to call all this magic, or the equivalent of Moses and the Ten Commandments, is going too far. This was not Nietzsche calling the Germans to glory. That was the Nazis' interpretation. Hence, their movement was not preordained, but really only the forces of history, something very different. In the fall of 1913, when Hitler was 19 years old, he was in Vienna and trying to survive by selling his postcard-sized pictures. He had already failed to get into the city's Academy of Fine Arts, and his mother's savings was running out. His work was not very good, hence he made little money. But supposedly, if the story can be believed, and certainly the second half of it is true, the young wretch was about to discover his destiny. While wandering the Hofburg Museum, he came across the Spear of Destiny, also known as the Sword of St. Maurice, the Holy Lance, or Spear of Longinus, the Roman centurion who pierced the side of Jesus while he was on the cross. This supposedly gave the weapon magical powers. Charlemagne claimed to possess it and said it was why he was so victorious. But later the spear fell from his hand and he died shortly thereafter. Later, the 12th century German conqueror Frederick Barbarossa had the spear during his victories, but when he dropped it while crossing a river, he was killed. Afterwards, at least 45 emperors would claim to be in possession of the spear. Now, it's highly doubtful that this item in the museum was the same one from 1,883 years ago. But there it, or another old spear, sat in the museum. Later, Hitler wrote, I knew with immediacy that this was an important moment in my life. I stood there quietly gazing upon it for several minutes. I felt as though I myself had held it in my hands before in some earlier century of history, that I myself had once claimed it as my talisman of power and held the destiny of the world in my hands. Though this moment of Hitler's is highly doubtful, 
He did live in the city and had much time on his hands. Maybe he did visit the museum. Either way, what's important was that this later writing is pure politics. How better to silence his critics than to claim he was chosen by a higher power to lead Germany to greatness? Either way, and it was either this event or some other that led to the destitute young man to think of himself as someone more than a failed artist. But here's the verifiable part of the story. When Austria was annexed into the Third Reich on March 12, 1938, after a speech, Hitler had the spear removed from the museum, placed aboard an armored train, and sent to Nuremberg, the spiritual capital of Nazi Germany. And, on April 30, 1945, at 2.10 p.m., the spear and the city fell to the American 7th Army, commanded by General Patton. Between two and three hours later, Hitler was dead by his own hand. But what makes the story of the 19-year-old Hitler having an epiphany when first seeing the spear hard to believe is the way he acted afterward. The Great War started a year after this improbable event, and though he sought to fight for Germany, he wasn't acting like a person who knew his fate. He was neurotic and given to bouts of shouting conspiracies. As one fellow soldier wrote, Hitler was considered a peculiar fellow. In the mess hall, after being quiet for a time, he would suddenly leap up and, running about excitedly, say that, in spite of all of our efforts, victory would be denied us, for the invisible foes of the German people were greater danger than the biggest cannon. We found him intolerable. And though Adolf would win the Iron Cross, first class, on August 4, 1918, it was for successfully delivering a dispatch. That was his job. But the question remains, why wasn't he fighting in the front lines? When Hitler rose to power 15 years later, it wasn't dark forces that guided him, though many would say that was the case. Again, it was simply historical factors. Germany's humiliation of losing the war, the fanciful stories of the German politicians called the November criminals that stabbed Germany in the back, the country's poor economic situation, the hyperinflation that wiped out life savings, the fear and anger that all these brought out. As for Hitler himself, he was driven, being the German nationalist that he was, by a sense of revenge, pushed on by fear of what would become of his beloved adopted country. Then there was the matter of his own self-hatred and a burning desire to show the world what he was capable of. His father had ruled him once, but the day would come when no one would hold sway over him. History is influenced by such things. Still, at the end of the Great War, Hitler was about to run smack into dark forces. On September 13, 1919, the occult brotherhood of the Thule Gelischaft was gathered in Munich. This society named after a legendary, i.e. non-existent, prehistoric Nordic civilization, was holding a seance 
to contact their masters for guidance. Their activities were as realistic as a unicorn. However, their members, who consisted of judges, professors, police chiefs, army officers, industrialists, and the aristocracy, were the basis of their real power. Their goals were that of any defeated country, to restore a national pride, and to rid the country of any Jewish influence, as the Brotherhood had deemed them responsible for Germany's defeat and continued struggles. Their leader was one Dietrich Eckhart, who had a profound influence on Hitler, and therefore the world. A wannabe playwright, Eckhart turned to drugs and alcohol, and to the dark arts, to have his own revenge on a world that would not accept his plays. With Germany at such a low point, the group could not delay in reviving their country. Hence, violence was not out of the question in obtaining their goals. As such, Eckhart had told his fellow members, we need a man at the head who can stand the sound of a machine gun. The rabble need to get fear in their pants. We can't use an officer because the people don't respect them anymore. The best man for the job would be a worker who knows how to talk. He doesn't need much brains. He must be a bachelor. Then we'll get the women. Spoken like a true politician. Sitting within the circle of the seance were others who would have influence over Hitler and the coming Nazi party. But at the moment, the men, and it was mostly men, fixed their eyes on the medium to be used that night, a naked woman, the wife of a local farmer. Slipping into a trance, she spoke as one of their group who had recently been killed. Impressively, she spoke in high German, though she herself was barely an educated Russian living in Germany. She declared that their leader, a leader for all of Germany, was coming. He would claim the Holy Lance and begin a campaign of world conquest, which is probably why, a little later, Hitler wrote of his prophetic moment with the spear in the museum. Anyway, then the naked middle-aged lady warned that their leader would prove to be a false prophet and would take Germany down even lower than the fatherland currently was. When the seance ended, the members, impressed with that night's performance, would only remember the first part of the message, that their Messiah was on the way, not what he would mean for Germany's future. In another part of town that night, Hitler was at the Alta Rosbad Tavern, watching a small group of radicals as they discussed their lack of funds and policies, probably much in the same way as Monty Python's People's Front of Judea. Hitler would later write that he came to this meeting to tell the DAP, or German Workers' Party, the predecessor of the Nazi Party, that he was not impressed and would not be joining them. This is a patent lie. Hitler, who was on the military intelligence's payroll, was ordered to investigate and join the DAP. The army was hoping to infiltrate, take over, and use the party to counter the growing trend of anti-nationalist sentiment 
within the working class. Hitler was merely following orders. But much like his Spear of Destiny moment, he would later alter the facts to present himself as a man of destiny. The plan was for him to take over. The army would fund him and order others to join, to listen to his speeches, and to applaud loudly. Hitler did as he was told, but his speeches were not yet the emotional roller coasters they were to become. Still, his first speeches were much like the last of his life. Germany had been stabbed in the back during the Great War, and the Jews secretly ran the world. And yet, what Hitler nor the army did not know, at first, was that the DAP had been created by the Thule Society, so they could manipulate the masses towards their nationalist agenda. Either way, when Eckhart heard Hitler speak and receive loud applause, though those applause were being paid for by the military intelligence, yes, everyone was trying to outplay everyone else, he knew he had found his man. Eckhart later wrote, Here is the one for whom I was but the prophet and the forerunner. Hitler replied in kind, This Dietrich Eckhart is a man I can admire. He appears to know the meaning of hatred and how to apply it. Which was true enough. Earlier, during a memorial for a murdered communist, some say that Eckhart himself did the killing, he had bags filled with blood from female dogs and thrown at posters of the deceased. This, of course, attracted the male dogs of the cities to sniff out the posters and urinate on them. Eckhart's message was clear enough, and for this, Hitler admired him. 